thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Each one of us as believers have a battle between being carnal versus being spiritual, between depending on our flesh versus depending on the spirit. And as we face the temptations of life, as we face uh, the spiritual battle that each one of us are in, we have to decide what are we going to use to fight that? Are we going to use carnal methods? Or are we going to use spiritual methods? Well, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians were very guilty of this struggle that all of us are guilty of, but they gave into it a lot, this struggle of giving into carnality, giving into their flesh instead of being led by the Spirit and following the Spirit. And so Paul wrote a whole letter to them in 1 Corinthians dealing with 11 different sins because of the fact they gave in so much to this carnal behavior in their life. But we're also going to see that they had a, a carnal uh, approach, a carnal view of Paul and his apostleship. You know, instead of viewing Paul like they should, instead of viewing him in a biblical way, that they kind of approached it in a fleshly way. They approached it in a carnal way. And so now this morning we come to a new section uh, in 2 Corinthians, and it's titled Calling. We, we've seen uh, seven different ways in which we can receive comfort that Paul has shared with with us. We looked at the, t- uh, the section on collection where Paul shares with us four different things about giving. And now we approach this new section here in 2 Corinthians uh, titled Calling because Paul is going to defend his calling as an apostle. And in this defense of his calling as an apostle, Paul is going to deal with five different things. First, the authentication of his apostleship. Second, the vindication of his apostleship. Third, the revelation of his apostleship. Fourth, the execution of his apostleship. And fifth, the conclusion of his apostleship. And this morning, we're going to look at the first thing that Paul deals with, which is the authentication of his apostleship. Paul wants these Corinthian believers, especially those who are struggling with him as an apostle, to understand that his apostleship is definitely authentic, something that God had given to him, something that is real. You know, when it comes to being an apostle, Paul wanted them to see him in a biblical way, to see him uh, as God made him. But unfortunately, they've kind of been blinded by their own carnal pursuit, their own carnal view, their own fleshly um, ideas of Paul. And so he wants to take some time to correct those things because the reality is they're not going to receive from him. They're not going to receive what he shares in this letter if they don't come to the conclusion of the truth that Paul truly is an apostle, someone that God has given authority to share these things with them. And so he wants them to grasp this and understand this. And so we're going to start here with dealing with the authentication of his apostleship. Chapter 10, starting in verse 1, says this. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. 
Here in chapter 10, leading all the way to chapter 13, we have a change, not just a new section, but there's a real change in way that Paul is writing here. In the first nine chapters, Paul keeps speaking in plural. We, us, he's referring to himself and those that were ministering with him. For example, in chapter one, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. Chapter three, we have such trust through Christ towards God. Chapter 4, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy. We don't lose heart. And we see this continual pattern all the way through the first nine chapters. This plural when referring to himself, because he's just referring to himself, but to those who are ministering with him. But now all of a sudden we come to chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, and there's a shift. Paul is no longer speaking in the plural. Now he's speaking in the singular. We see I, we see me, we see myself. I mean, notice how he starts chapter 10, something that's very redundant. He says, now I, Paul, myself. He says the same things three times. He only needed to say, now I am pleading with you. But he said, he says, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you. He wants them to recognize there's a shift here. I've been talking about me and everybody with me, but now I'm just talking about myself personally. I want you to guys to kind of see that I'm changing the focus here. But not only is he only speaking about himself personally, there's also a change in who he's actually addressing. Because not all of the Corinthian believers had an issue with Paul's apostleship. There was just a a group of them within Corinth that struggled with it. So now the shift is, hey, I'm referring to myself personally, and I'm speaking to those of you uh, that actually have an issue with my apostleship, who don't believe that truly that is something that God has given to me. And so now I'm addressing that specific group. And so we have this change here starting in 10, uh, chapter 10 of, you know, Paul going into the singular, speaking about himself and addressing this specific group. And so he says, I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's so important to realize here that before Paul starts dealing with some of the carnal ways that this group of Corinthians have seen him and viewed him, he wants them to understand how he is going to approach them, how he is going to deal with this. Notice what he says. He says, I want you to know that I'm dealing with this by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You know, this is very important for these Corinthians to understand because some of the things that Paul's about to say here in chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 are quite stern. And it needs to be stern because they're in sin and the way in which they see him is sinful. And so he wants to really deal with that. But he also wants them to know, as you have complained against me, as you have come against me, as you have said things against me, I'm approaching this in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And this is not easy to do. And I think this is such a good example to you and I, because so often when, you know, people complain against us or have issues against us or say things about us, you know, it's hard to respond this way, to respond in humility, to respond in meekness, to respond in gentleness. Often we respond with anger. We respond in uh, ways that just don't represent God at all. And so, you know, instead of just wanting to attack those who say stuff against us or defend us, just to say, you know what, I'm going to respond with the meekness and the gentleness that Jesus demonstrated. 
So we see that Paul wants them to know this, and now he's going to address one of the problems that they had. He says, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. We're going to see in this chapter that Paul basically, uh, and sometimes actually quotes them here. I think he's just referring to something that they thought about him, but he's sharing, hey, I've heard what you guys are thinking. I heard what you guys are saying about me. And one of the issues that uh, the Corinthians or some of them had with Paul is, you know what, Paul, when you come to us in person, you're kind of a lowly guy. But when you're away from us and you're writing letters like 1 Corinthians, man, you're so bold. You're so bold to rebuke. You're so bold to say these types of things. And so they're kind of feeling like in person, you're one way. And then when you're not with us, you're kind of a different way. And so, you know, they didn't really think that Paul was that impressive in person, and he's just kind of this different guy. And so Paul addresses their criticism in verse 2 by saying, but I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. You know, Paul, why aren't you bold with us in person like you are when you write letters? And Paul reveals his heart. I don't want to have to be bold like that with you in person. I don't like rebuking people. I don't get excited about that. I don't enjoy those things. You know, I I think most people would fit into that category. If you enjoy rebuking people, there's probably something wrong. But, you know, the reality is when you're face-to-face with people, that's not pleasant. That's not something Paul wanted or something that he desired to do. And he's like, I don't want to have to come to you face-to-face and do these things and share these things and and have this unpleasant time. That's not my heart or my desire. But for those of you who are continuing to say things negative against me that aren't true, I'm going to have to come face to face and be that bold person that you say, well, why are you bold when you're away from us and not when you're with us? Well, you know what? For some of you, when I come, I'm going to need to do that because you think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. And here's something that is another accusation against Paul. Not only are, oh, you seem to be so bold when you're not with us and so lowly when you are, but you, know, you walk according to the flesh, Paul. And so Paul wants to respond to this accusation that he walks according to the flesh. Notice what he says in verses three through six. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So in response to this criticism of Paul, you walk according to the flesh, Paul starts off with just, you know what? Hey, I walk in the flesh in the sense of everybody walking in the flesh being that we're all human beings. We all struggle with the flesh. We all struggle with the desire to be carnal, the desire to follow the flesh. But Paul wants to clarify that, hey, you know what? I don't war according to the flesh. All of us have this battle within us, but how are we fighting that battle? How are we warring? This group of Corinthian believers were basically warring against Paul. They're criticizing him. They're coming against him. They're trying to get other people to not accept his authority in the letter that he writes and what he's doing. You know, they're dealing with Paul in a fleshly way, in a carnal way. They're warring that way. But Paul wants to know, you know what? I don't war that way. Notice what he says in verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. 
You know, Paul understood something very important. All of us are in a battle. It's a spiritual battle. Now, many Christians, they don't want to accept that. They don't want to believe that. But it doesn't change the reality that the battle's taking place. You're just not fighting. Uh, it's still happening. You, know, you can ignore it all you want, but it doesn't uh, make it stop. The reality is we are in a spiritual battle. The question is, are you fighting? And then more importantly, what are you using as your weapon to fight? And Paul wants us to realize within the spiritual battle, our weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. Unfortunately, that's what the Corinthians were using. But if you remember when we went through Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lists many of these spiritual weapons that we should arm ourselves with. And he gives us this picture of a Roman soldier and he gives us these weapons that we should be using to protect ourselves from the attacks of the enemy and the spiritual battle we're in, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of spirit. He also talks about prayer being a weapon. And, you know, to rely upon God and trust in these things, not use some kind of carnal method in order to protect ourselves. You see, this group of Corinthian Christians that were against Paul, they they had a tendency to rely upon carnal weapons instead of spiritual ones. But something important for us to understand is for every spiritual weapon that is available to us, as we look at this list, there are also carnal ways, or even you could use the term weapons, that we could try and use in the circumstances that we face in life. For example, instead of using the spiritual weapon of the belt of truth, people can use the carnal weapon of manipulation and lies. Instead of using truth, we often see Christians using lies and using manipulation to try to get what they want instead of holding to truth. Instead of using the breastplate of Jesus' righteousness because we're righteous only because of him, oftentimes people who are believers try to stand in their own righteousness, try to become righteous in their own things that they do. Instead of using the shoes of the gospel of peace, people often use smooth and deceptive words. Instead of using the shield of faith, people will try using worldly power. Instead of using the helmet of salvation, people use worldly security. Instead of using the sword of the spirit, people use human schemes and programs in order to try to accomplish spiritual things. So there's two different types of weapons that you can fight with. There are carnal weapons and there are spiritual weapons. But something we need to realize is in a spiritual battle, there's only one weapon that is effective, and that is a spiritual weapon. If you try to use a carnal weapon in a spiritual battle, it is not going to work. It is not going to help. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul makes very clear, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It isn't against other people. It's a spiritual battle against spiritual hosts of wickedness. That's where the battle truly lies. And if you want to be victorious in that battle, you better be relying upon your spiritual weapons. So Paul makes clear that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal ones. They're spiritual ones. But now in the rest of verses 3, 4, uh, through, or four through six, sorry, Paul's going to reveal, well, what is it that these spiritual weapons accomplish in the spiritual battle? And there are several very important things that they accomplish. Verse four, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ 
and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So Paul brings up four great things that these spiritual weapons accomplish in the spiritual battle. And if we're thinking like, well, what's the purpose of using this? Why should I emphasize this? Why should I want this? Well, these four things are great reasons for why these are good. First, we're told that these spiritual weapons are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And this is so important for us because each one of us deal with strongholds, deal with things in our life that are trying to hold on to us, sins and struggles that, that are difficult for us to get rid of, temptations and addictions and things that, that, that we struggle with as believers, these strongholds that we face. And the question is, how do we remove them? How do we get through them? How do we no longer continue to indulge in them? What is it that can help us break free from these strongholds that are in our life? Well, one thing we need to understand is no carnal method, no carnal program, no carnal weapon is ultimately going to free you from the strongholds that you face. No dependence on yourself, your might, your strength is strong enough to free you from the strongholds you face. You see, the reason these spiritual weapons can pull down strongholds, because we're told they are mighty in God. That's why they have power, because the might and the power come from God. These spiritual weapons are mighty in God, and because they are mighty in God, they have the power to do the things that they claim to Accomplished. And notice that this phrase, mighty in God, is connected to all four of the things that the spiritual weapons accomplish. Because all of them come back to the reality of the reason that they can do what they say they will do is because their might and their power comes from God. So if you want a stronghold pulled down in your life, you need something that has the might and power of God to do it. And so I'm sure you have experience, I know I have, of seeking to pull down strongholds in my life and my own strength and my own power, depending on worldly wisdom and worldly thoughts, and always coming to the conclusion that I'm sure you have as well, it doesn't work. The only thing that ultimately can bring down these strongholds is the power of God, the might of God, these spiritual weapons that he brings to us. But I think you need to understand as well is that Spiritual weapons are great. They're available to us. God says, here you go. But they're only useful if we actually use them. If I just have a bunch of weapons, you know, someone breaks into my house and I got plenty of guns that could defend myself. If I don't use them, they're useless to me. They're just sitting there. I have to actually pick them up and and take advantage of them. These weapons that we've been given are there for us to use and we need to actually take them, apply them and use them. Rely upon God. Rely upon his spirit, rely upon his word, rely upon the armor that he has given to us to protect us in this spiritual battle. So the first thing that spiritual weapons are able to do is they accomplish, uh, they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Uh, The second thing that spiritual weapons are able to accomplish, we're told, is that they are mighty in God for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Man, we live in a world that is constantly arguing and exalting itself against God. 
you know, for many, they don't believe that God exists at all, but they're still exalting themselves. Well, basically, we are God. We will determine what is right and wrong. We'll determine how we live. We're not answerable to anyone except to ourselves. We live in a culture that has definitely done this. We have all sorts of arguments to try to disprove God. We have all sorts of belief that exalt ourselves above God. And that is the culture in which we live in. And as Christians, we are combating that. We have to seek to, you know, go against these thoughts, especially when you get into college and other places and you have university professors who are trying to you know instill in you these thoughts that oh no there is no god and you're so foolish for believing that and and all these things you know how are we going to combat that how are we going to deal with that because carnal weapons aren't going to help you know our own intellect isn't enough we need spiritual weapons in order to battle the things that this world is bringing to us we need to depend upon the truth of god's word hold to that speak that rely upon the power of the holy spirit in in combating these lies that come against us the third thing that spiritual weapons are able to accomplish is they are mighty in god for bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Yeah, you know, we talked about this battle uh, that the world tries to exalt itself, but you know what? One of the biggest things the world attacks is our mind. They want to change the way in which we think. They want our thinking to be in line with them. That's one of their biggest goals. And, and we have so many outlets today that influence the way in which we think. We got social media, we got news, we got TV, we got movies, we got, you know, all these different things on the internet. And, and so much of it is just bombarding us to try to influence the way in which we think. They want us to change our thinking from being biblical and godly to being worldly and secular. And they are doing a great job of that within the body of Christ. There are so many Christians who have been influenced by these things that they change their thinking from being biblical thinking to being worldly thinking. And the problem that so often happens is we are combating this stuff with carnal methods instead of spiritual ones. And we don't want, why aren't we winning? Well, because we're not using the right weapons. Romans 12, 2 tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, the world wants us to conform to the way in which it thinks. But God says you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds are such a big battleground and we need to use what God has given to us to combat what this world is seeking to do. We have to rely upon the truth of his word, the Holy Spirit, the armor that he's given us. If we're abandoning that, we're never going to be effective in this battle that seems to just be relentless against us. The fourth thing that Paul tells us spiritual weapons are able to accomplish is they are mighty in God for making us ready to punish all disobedience. You know, when Christians are in sin and disobedient to God, really only those who are relying upon the proper weapons are capable of dealing with that properly. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul dealt with the goal of punishing believers in sin. There were three main things, to restore them back into a relationship, to bring repentance, and ultimately to have that, that loving relationship back again. But you know what? If you're not approaching them with the right heart, with the spiritual weapons that have been provided, uh, 
following the biblical guidelines that are there. If you're using carnal methods, then you can obviously be driven by revenge. You can be driven by anger. You can be driven by jealousy. You can be driven by pride. You can be driven by all sorts of things that will not produce repentance, restoration, you know, relationships coming back the way they are. And so often, you know, when someone is in sin, the problem is the person who's seeking to go and deal with that isn't using the biblical ways in which they should do it. They're not using what spiritual weapons they've been given, and it just makes a big mess of the problem. But Paul wants the Corinthians to realize, hey, you guys are in sin. I'm coming to uh, discipline that sin, but I'm using the right spiritual weapons in order for that to happen, because my ultimate goal is restoration. My ultimate goal is repentance. My ultimate goal is that we would have our relationship back the way that it used to be. And so there are two different types of weapons we can use in the war that we face, carnal or spiritual. But the one that is effective, the one that can accomplish these four important things are only spiritual weapons. If you want to pull down strongholds, if you want to cast down arguments, if you want to bring every thought into captivity, and if you want to be ready to punish disobedience, the only way that's going to happen is if you use the spiritual weapons that God has provided. You know, Alan Redpath, he's a great pastor and commentator. He said this about the church's reliance upon carnal things. Apart from a mighty awakening and revival in the church, we are fighting a losing battle because we are resisting on carnal levels. You know, when you look at the church world today as a whole, there's so much truth in this statement of why are we ineffective in so many areas, especially in this spiritual battle? Well, one of the reasons is because we're fighting with carnal weapons instead of fighting with what God has given to us spiritually to use. And we wonder, why is it we keep failing to win the battle? Well, unless there's a big change in the way in which we, de- what we depend on and what we use, we're not going to see a significant change in that area. We will never win the spiritual battle if we don't fight with spiritual weapons. So Paul wants to make very clear that this group of Corinthian believers, they're not using the right weapons. They're using carnal ones. But he, on the other hand, is using spiritual ones. Paul goes on to reveal another problem that these Corinthians had, and that's a carnal reliance upon the outward appearance. Verse 7 says this, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ's. Paul's question here reveals another problem the Corinthians had, a carnal view of Paul. And his question is, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? And the answer to the question, as he's going to clarify even in the next verses, is yes, they do. That's one of their problems. They're so focused on the outward appearance that they're missing so much more important things. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about what Paul looked like. You know, we probably have all sorts of pictures in our mind of all these different men and women of God that we read about, and maybe we've even seen some movies portraying things. But it's interesting that we have a bit of writing in ancient times of things about Paul, and none of them are flattering. Uh, there's a description of Paul uh, written back in 200 AD. It says this, Paul was a man of small stature, with a bald head, crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting together and a nose somewhat hooked. 
So basically what this is saying is Paul was short, he was bald, he was overweight, and he was unattractive. This is not a, a, a great outward appearance that we have of this man. And so often in our culture, especially when it comes to ministry, we're, we're drawn to those with this outward attraction, this beauty that we think, you know, oh, that's so great. But Paul's saying, you know what, hey, if anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ. Let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. Paul's saying, you know, if you claim to belong to Jesus, just look at yourself. You're not mighty, maybe some of you in outward appearance, yet you belong to Jesus. That's what matters, the fact that his spirit resides in you, that you are his child. But you know what? I belong to Jesus as well. So why are you so concerned with my outward appearance and not more concerned with the reality of the spirit of Christ working through me, of the apostleship that God has given to me and the work that he's doing in me? It shouldn't be what I look like. That's what's most important. But that's a struggle that we have. First Samuel sixteen seven reveals something about the difference between how we see things and God sees things. We're told the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is just a struggle we have. We see the outward. We judge things based on the outward. We're drawn to good looks, and sometimes we're pushed away by bad. That's just a reality of what we face, but we need to recognize God does not see things that way. We might look at the outward. God looks at the heart. What's happening inwardly in someone is far more important to God than the outward show, which often what it is. The Pharisees got rebuked by Jesus more than anyone else. And one of the biggest things that he rebuked them about was that you put on this show that you're so spiritual, but I see what you're really like inside and you're not spiritual at all. So God can see past the outward. He's not focused on that like we are. And in the church world, we got to be careful because there's so many churches and people that want to put people into ministry based on their outward appearance. Oh man, they are so attractive, or their words are so well put together. They're such great communicators. There's all these kind of outward things that they say, well, they would make such a wonderful whatever. But what about what's inside? What about their character? What about, you know, what's going on in their heart? Are they men and women of God? That should be what's most important. When you look at the qualifications for a pastor, for an elder, for anything, you'll notice something very important. There's only one ability mentioned. That's the ability to teach. Everything else has to do with character. Everything else has to do with what's inside that God is looking at. He doesn't care what you look like. He cares what's happening in your character. What kind of person are you? Are you a godly person or not? That should be what we concern ourselves with, but too often we're like the Corinthians and get sidetracked by things that don't matter, by this outward appearance instead of what's really going on. Are these people truly godly? Verse 8. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present." Paul recognized that his authority as an apostle that God gave to him was for a specific reason. It was for edification, not for destruction. 
You know, I think it's something that's so important to understand. Every role of leadership that God gives, because he gives a lot of them. He gives many in the church. He gives them in the home. He gives them in the society. Every role of leadership that God gives is mainly for the purpose of building up and edifying. It's never for the purpose of destroying lives. Unfortunately, we as you know, carnal people take leadership roles that God has given to us and we use them in a way that God never intended. Many husbands use their role as the spiritual head of the home to destroy their family instead of to edify their family. Many pastors and leaders in the church do the same instead of seeing this leadership role as an opportunity and a purpose of edification, building up, raising people up, they use it to overthrow and to have power over and to destroy lives. And we need to recognize Paul understood, hey, the authority that God granted me was for the purpose of edification. It was not for the purpose of destruction. And his desire is using his authority to edify these Corinthian believers, not to destroy them. He wants them to recognize their sin and he wants them to repent. He wants them to change. He wants them to grow. He goes on to say, I shall not be ashamed lest I seem to terrify you with letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. So here Paul clearly quotes what this group has been saying. All right, I hear what you guys are saying about me. It gets, it gets back to me. And notice what they're saying. They're saying ultimately, you know, it's a focus on his outward appearance. Paul's bodily presence is weak. You know, you look at him physically. I mean, he's kind of a, a weak guy. And not only that, his speech is contemptible. But notice that they're only hearing the, the style of his delivery but not focus on the message itself. And that's so sad when people just judge, you know, well, they don't look that great or, you know, maybe they're not the best communicators. But the, the real question is, what did they say? <laughs> What's the message? That's the most important because if the message is biblical, if the message is right, then that should be what we're most concerned about because there's plenty of people that are very attractive and very good at communicating and they're communicating lies. They're communicating things that are not biblical. And we should be more concerned about people like that saying, you know what? What's the message? Not how did they look or how did they communicate, but what is it that they're actually saying? And we see here that these Corinthians missed it. Oh, you're just weak, Paul, in your appearance and your words. Man, we don't even really listen to them because your speech is contemptible. Well, Paul has something to say to these people. He says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in words by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we're present. Remember they said earlier, you know what, Paul, you're kind of really bold when you write letters and you're really lowly when you're in our presence personally. He says, all right, for those of you who are still claiming these things, I want you to know something. That boldness that I have shown in my letters, I will show face to face with you. When I come, if you're still claiming all these things, then we're going to have a little face to face time where I'm going to boldly rebuke you to your face instead of just boldly rebuking you in letters. Well, now Paul is going to conclude this chapter looking at the right and wrong way you should measure someone in ministry because obviously they were measuring Paul's apostleship in the wrong way and he wants us to see the right way and the wrong way. He starts with the wrong way, verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. 
So Paul starts off with, okay, here is a wrong way to measure someone in ministry or really just to measure someone as a believer, period. Notice that the way that the Corinthians measured people in ministry was by comparing those people to themselves. Paul's saying, it isn't wise to do this. When your comparison is just between me and you or you and someone else, that's never a good idea because this type of measuring, usually two things result. Either you get puffed up because you think you are better than the other person because of measuring yourself to them, or you get pulled down because you think you're worse. But in reality, the Bible never tells us to measure ourselves by one another. That shouldn't be the standard because, you know what, you can always find someone who's doing worse than you. You know, if you want to look around, you can always make yourself feel good by saying, well, at least I'm doing better than so-and-so. I mean, look at their life. Look at what they're going through. I'm not doing so bad. You can always find that. But the Bible never says that that is our measuring stick. That's not what we should be looking to. That's not the example that we should be following. Bible's clear. There's one example beyond all that is the ultimate example that is our measuring stick that we should follow. And that's the example of Christ. He's the one that we measure ourselves to. He should be the one that we're looking to. And guess what? When you look to Jesus, when he is the example, when he is the one you're measuring your life by, we all fit in the same category of we fall short. We got work to do. No matter how good you think you're doing, you look at Jesus and you realize, I still got a long way to go. There's still areas of my life that need to grow. I'm not there yet. And you will never be there as long as you live because you're never going to reach the perfection of Jesus. But we should keep that as the standard. John Trapp, a good commentator, says this about what we compare ourselves to. Oh, pray to be preserved from this perilous pinnacle of self-exaltation. Look into the perfect law of liberty and draw nigh to God. The nearer we come to God, the more rottenness we find in our bones. You know, I think this is so important for us because... The reality is when you look to someone to make yourself feel better, you're looking for someone who's doing worse than you, it brings you to a place where you can convince yourself, I don't need to change. I'm doing better than so-and-so. I'm doing fine. And you got you get to this place of, it's okay, I can just continue as I am. But that's never the place that God wants us. He doesn't want us continuing as we are. He wants us to recognize, no, we need to change. We need to become more like Christ. But the only way we're going to see how we need to become more like Christ is if Christ is the one that we're measuring ourselves to. If I'm only measuring myself to people, I can get to a place where I just stay the way I am. But when I measure myself to Christ, I come to a place where I recognize I have a lot of issues. I have a lot of sin. There is rottenness within me that I would never have seen unless I compared myself to perfection, which is Jesus Christ. And I realize there's a lot that needs to change in me. And I want to change and I want to be more like Jesus. Jesus, but if he's not the standard and he's not the example, then there's not that reality that's going to set in my life to do those things. And so, you know what? Nothing really good comes from this comparison with one another, you know, feeling good or feeling bad. You know, at the end of the day, all of us should just look to Jesus and recognize we fall short and depend on him to each day help us grow more to become like Christ. So that's how we shouldn't measure people in ministry. We shouldn't be focusing on comparing one another to one another. But now Paul is going to give us a way that we should measure someone in ministry, verses 13 through 16. We, however, 
will not beyond, boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you, for we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of the things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's fear of accomplishments. So here Paul gives us a right way to measure people in ministry. You see, this group of Corinthian believers were boasting beyond measure. But Paul won't boast in that way. He would only boast within the limits of the sphere of what God was doing through him and the areas in which God appointed him to minister to. And he makes very clear that the Corinthians are within that sphere. Why? Because God sent Paul to Corinth to plant the church. He's the one who shared the gospel with them. He was used by God to see them come to salvation and to help them grow in their relationship with God. And so he's saying, hey, you guys are actually a part of my sphere of what God has done through me and allowed me to be a part of because he sent me to Corinth to do this work. But he's saying, I'm not going to boast beyond that. I'm not going to boast in anything beyond what God has done in and through me. That's all I'm going to boast. And I'm not going to boast in another man's sphere of what he's accomplished, which the Corinthians were guilty of. I'm only going to be boasting in what God has done in and through my life, because ultimately I want to boast in him. It's not about me, Paul, or what I've done. It's what God has done through me. And notice how he concludes this chapter, verse 17 and 18 says this. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Paul here is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, and he's using verse 24. But I want to share verses 23 and 24 of Jeremiah to give you the context of what Paul is quoting in order to make a very important point to them and to us. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Paul uses Jeremiah as a rebuke to the Corinthians because he shares with them, you are glorying in the wrong things. And this is our struggle so often as believers. We get sidetracked with what we should glory in. And it's so easy to glory in ourselves and what we feel we've done and how great we are. When all reality is there's only one who ever deserves glory. And that is God himself. And I love this passage because it lists so many things that we struggle with. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. It comes from God. Glory in Him. Let not the mighty man glory in His might. The reason that you have might is from the Lord. Let not the rich man glory in His riches. It comes from God. Recognize it's all His. He's given it. Glory and honor should be to Him and to Him alone. Paul finishes by saying, For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It doesn't matter that you commend yourself and say, I'm so wonderful. And it doesn't matter actually what other people say. There's only one thing that matters. What does God think? 
That's the reality. And too often we're so focused on what people think that we could care less what God thinks. And we show that in the way in which we live. We show that in the way in which we think. We show that in the way in which we act. We're not concerned with what God says and what God thinks. We're concerned with this world. We're concerned with what people are thinking about us. Or we're concerned with our own thoughts. When the reality is there's only one person that can commend. Only one voice and opinion that truly matters. And that is the Lord's opinion. He is the one who can approve. You know, there was a violin student who trained under one of the greatest violin teachers in Russia. And he spent many, many years doing that, and he became quite a good violin player himself. And he had the privilege of playing in front of this huge audience of people. And as he plays his first song, it's just so beautiful. The applause are just going throughout this whole area of people. And yet the face of this violinist doesn't really seem bothered at all by that. He's just looking up into you know the crowd at this one man, older man in the balcony, and plays the next song. Same thing, great applause, same thing, this violinist doesn't really respond. Finally, he's finished, and it's just so beautiful that there's a standing ovation, and everyone's cheering, and still there's just kind of this blank look on this boy's face, and then as he looks to this older man, the older man stands up and starts to clap. And then all of a sudden, this this face of this boy lights up, he smiles, tears start running down his eyes. That was his teacher. And that's who he was playing for. He didn't care about the rest of the crowd. He didn't care that they thought it was great. He cared about one person. He was an audience of one to him. If that teacher stands and cheers, I'm blessed. And if he doesn't, I'm not. And I think too often we need to recognize, you know what? In the Christian life, we should be playing for an audience of one. It doesn't matter how many cheers or how many boos we get from people in this world. The real thing is, Is God pleased with the way in which I live? Is God pleased with the things that I'm doing? That should be my standard. That should be what drives me. That should be all I really concern myself with. Because if he's pleased with me, then that's good. And if he's not, then that's bad. When I stand before him, I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I want him to be pleased with the way in which I live my life and do the things that he's called me to do. Paul was focused on pleasing God. That's what drove him. That is what should drive us as well. And so in this authentication of his apostleship, Paul deals with several of these issues that the Corinthian believers had with him, that his letters were so bold, but in person he was lowly and weak. And he points out, hey, you guys are warring according to carnal methods. You're not using spiritual weapons that can pull down strongholds, cast down arguments, bring thoughts into captives, and make you ready to punish disobedience. Secondly, Paul points out these believers were carnal in the fact that they were judging him based on outward appearance. Hey, your presence is weak. Your speech is contemptible. Yeah, what about my heart? What about the fact of what God is doing? What about the message that I'm actually proclaiming? That should be the focus. Thirdly, Paul points out that these believers were carnal because of the way in which they measured people in ministry was by comparing themselves to themselves. Paul's saying, hey, the only one you should compare yourself to is Jesus himself. And fourthly, Paul points out that these believers were carnal because they gloried in themselves, not in the Lord. They commended themselves and didn't look for God's commendation. 
So Paul's revealing, you know what? Your perspective of me is not biblical. It's not spiritual. It's carnal. And it needs to change. And we need to be careful as we hear this description that we're not like them, that we're not like the Corinthians in the way in which we view people and the way in which we deal with the spiritual battle, making sure that we're focused on the spiritual, not the carnal. Let's pray.